Jesus said, unless your heart is right with God, just following the rules doesn't mean anything to God. Doesn't mean anything. It's gotta be a heart issue. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Um, we're going to finish up Mark today and next week start First uh, Timothy. Um, you know, what we have in abundance we tend to take for granted, and freedom is not free. It's extraordinarily expensive. There is always a price on freedom. And we're just celebrating physical freedom and Memorial Day. We're really here to celebrate a spiritual freedom from the slavery we had to sin and the spiritual freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Because if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. <clears throat> so Mark chapter 12. The teacher in our adult education creative writing class gave an assignment to write, I love you, in 25 words or less, without using the words, I love you. She gave us 15 minutes to complete the assignment. A woman in the class spent 10 minutes looking at the ceiling and the last five minutes scribbling. She later read us the results. Why, I've seen worse hairdos than that, honey. Those cookies are hardly burned at all. Cuddle up, I'll keep your foot warm. How do you say, I love you? Today we're going to look at the first and the great commandment, the commandment to love God and to love people. For those of you that are in the 8 o'clock service, uh, you're going to realize that uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to Roger and I uh, without us talking with each other because there's going to be some overlap today. So my assumption is y'all needed to hear it twice, okay? <laughs> so where we are in the context is we're on Tuesday of Passion Week. Passion Week is the last week of Jesus Christ's life on earth and his earthly ministry before the cross, which he dies on Friday and, of course, is resurrected on Sunday. So on Sunday, the first week, first day of that Passion Week, he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He's proclaimed king of the Jews by thousands and thousands of crowds who cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He fulfills prophecy that the king of the Jews will come in riding on a donkey. The next day on Monday, Jesus deep cleans the temple, cleanses the temple by drives out those who are making a fortune uh, by robbing worshipers of God in the name of religion. So there's a lot of greedy religious hypocrites, uh, most of them priests, interestingly enough, who have turned God's house of prayer into a den of thieves. And Jesus is furious that they've corrupted uh, God's house and he throws them out. So today is Tuesday. Tuesday, Jesus speaks to the crowd in parables, and he publicly denounces the Pharisees on multiple occasions for their hypocrisy and wickedness. If you want to read one of the most scintillating sermons ever preached, go to Matthew 23, and you will read what Jesus said specifically to the religious leaders on Tuesday. Seven woes. 
So the political and religious leaders are desperate to destroy Jesus. Um, he's exposing their religious deception. He's exposing their religious control. He's exposing their religious hypocrisy. And he's a real threat to their power over the people. They can't just assassinate him because Rome has not given the power to execute to the Jews. Only Rome can enforce capital punishment. And they can't either just assassinate him because the crowd's loving and there's thousands of people watching him all the time. So on this day, on Tuesday, on three separate occasions, they try and trap him in something that he's going to say. They set verbal traps, and their goal here is to alienate him from the crowds, hope he'll say something that will alienate him from the crowds so the crowds will stop following him. They're also hoping he'll say something they can accuse him of of treason for the Romans, and so the Romans will execute him for treason. So Jesus responds with such wisdom to the first two groups. We, last week we talked about when taxation, the question of taxation, and Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God. He responds with such wisdom that they're humiliated, publicly humiliated, and they go away and lay another trap. So we're going to pick up the story today, the narrative today on verse 28, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. He's talking about Jesus and these other religious leaders and recognizes that Jesus had answered them well, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, another point of view on that is in Matthew 22, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, because the Sadducees are the wealthy ones and they had the question about taxes, and when Jesus silenced them and humiliated them, they gathered themselves together, the Pharisees did, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So the first two times they've tried to discredit him by trapping in something he says, the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling body of Judaism, there's 70 uh, um, members plus the high priest, so 71. So they reconvene and they plan a third attack. This is the third time in one day they're going to try and trap him in what he says so they can accuse him of, of, uh, of treason uh, or apostasy, either one, and get him uh, executed. So a scribe takes the lead in answering these questions. Now, the scribes of that day were legal experts. They weren't legal experts in civil law. They were legal experts in religious law. So they studied the law of Moses. They studied the first five books of the Bible. Actually, they studied the entire Old Testament. They were theologians, and they expounded the Mosaic law down to the gnat's eye teeth. I mean, they were concerned with minutia. So they're theologians, and they are the legal experts on the Mosaic law for the nation. And this particular one, this particular lawyer, was a, was a uh, delegated as a spokesman, sent to trap Jesus in something he might say. And the intent of this delegation is very, very antagonistic. Uh, but it's interesting, this particular lawyer uh, seems to be interested in genuinely seeking the truth. He seems to have overheard how Jesus responded to the first two groups and about paying taxes to Caesar, Caesar and the resurrection. And he's, he's impressed. So he asks Jesus a question. And this is not a random question. This is a question the Sanhedrin has very carefully set up, right? So this is an attorney, a legal expert, asking a question to trap Jesus so they can execute him. 
Uh, I think it was Shakespeare in one of his early plays has one of the peasants say, first thing we I do is kill all the lawyers. Anyway, that was just free. But this attorney, this legal expert in the Mosaic law, asked Jesus, which commandment is the foremost of all? Now, the backdrop is these scribes and Pharisees believe that Jesus has been teaching against the Mosaic law. And you have to understand, in, religion, in, in Israel's religious hierarchy, Moses was at the very top of the pyramid. No one was higher in the religious hierarchy of veneration than Moses, because Moses, of course, had talked with God at the burning bush. God had spoken to Moses during the ten plagues in Egypt. God had spoken to Moses for the 40 years in the wilderness. But most of all, God had spoke to Moses face to face on the top of Mount Sinai when he was given the law. So the Jews believed that no one could get closer to God than Moses. And so they held Moses in the highest esteem. And they had spent, these scribes and Pharisees, their entire lives studying Mosaic law and trying to keep it and trying to force others to keep it. So Jesus had already antagonized these people because he told them on the Sermon on the Mount, he told the crowds that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of these legal legals, these scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting, getting the kingdom of heaven. Which was shocking because the scribes and Pharisees were supposed to be closer to God than the common people. The scribes and Pharisees focused on following the external rules. It's all about rules. Got to do this, got to do that. And they had a lot of them. But they did not have a relationship with God. It's like their relationship with God was like a business contract. I do the rules and you give me the goodies, right? So it's a business relationship with God. That's how the scribes and Pharisees viewed God. I did all the rules, all the minutia. I don't have to love you. I don't even have to like you. It's a contract. We do the contract and that's our relationship. And Jesus said, unless your heart is right with God, just following the rules doesn't mean anything to God. Doesn't mean anything. It's got to be a heart issue. So they asked Jesus this question. They hoped to trap him. What they were hoping that Jesus would say is that his own teaching was greater than Moses. Then they've got it. If they could get Jesus to say that the greatest commandment was something other than what Moses taught, now they've got cause to declare him a religious hypocrite or a heretic apostate, anti-Moses, anti-Judaism, now they can discredit them to the crowds and the crowds will stop following Jesus and start following them because this is envy. Jesus has got bigger crowds than they do and they don't like it. So the Jewish rabbis for hundreds of years had taken the law that God had given to Moses and they had expanded it dramatically. Over the centuries, there were 613 separate laws and interpretations that had been added to what God had said. And these human opinions and traditions were placed on the same level as God's word. So you've got God's word given to Moses, and then you've got human laws on top of that, and there's 613 of them. And John MacArthur notes that 613 laws were chosen because in the Hebrew language, the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, took 613 letters to write. That's where we got 613 laws. One law for every letter. Somebody must have taken the time to count the letters, and somebody obviously decided that we needed one law for every letter, right? 
So, of the 613 laws, 365 were negative. They forbid you from doing certain things, the thou shalt nots. And there's one thou shalt not for every day of the year. And 248, the other 248 were positive. They were affirmations. They commanded you to do certain things. And 248 corresponds to the number of bones and organs in the human body. I'm not making this up. This is obviously a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of human tradition here. I have no idea why 613 seems to be so important because we can't even remember 10. And we can't do 10 either. We don't keep the 10, let alone the rest of them at that point. So 613 is a lot of do's and don'ts to remember. And as you can imagine, no one could remember them all, let alone do them. I pulled up a list, Judaism101.com, if you're interested in finding it, and they've got the list, all 613. I mean, if you need some sleeping aid, pull it up in bed and just start reading and you will go, oh, man. That's a lot to remember. So since no one can keep them all, there's a lot of debate among Judaism at that point about which laws were heavier and which laws were lighter. In other words, which ones God put more weight on and which ones God said, nah, not so important, right? They wanted to figure out what was important to God and what wasn't. Because obviously we can't keep all of them. So we need to figure out what are the few essential ones that if we keep them, you know, God will be happy. So this scribe comes to Jesus, and he addresses Jesus as rabbi or teacher, which is a term of very high respect. And he's not looking for a few laws. He's looking for one. He says, I want to know the number one. I want to know the most important one. You know, it's interesting. This scribe seems like he's genuinely interested in keeping God's laws, so he wants to find out how to focus his attention and what's the most important thing to God. Unfortunately, he still believes that he can be made right with God through his own efforts. If I just know what the number one law is, I'll work on that one really hard, and God will be impressed. Now, Jesus doesn't give them a new answer. He doesn't claim that his teaching is superior to Moses. He actually takes them back to Moses and quotes Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me give you a little historical context. Rob is going to give you a a, a shot of, of Israel's wilderness journeys. Now, this is about... They wandered in the wilderness from 1444 to about 1404 B.C., so about 40 years in the wilderness. And they've just gotten done with their 40 years of wilderness wanderings due to their disobedience at Kadesh Barnea. You're going to see a little uh, thing there at the top of the loop called Barnea, Kadesh Barnea. That's when they had left Egypt. They'd spent time in Mount Sinai. They spent about a year down there at Mount Sinai getting the law, 11 months. Then they went up to Kadesh Barnea. God said, it's time to go into the land. And Israel said, we can't do that. There are giants there. God, you're not strong enough to keep your promise to give us the land. As a matter of fact, we think that you set us up to kill us. Let's kill Moses and go back to Egypt. And they said this after they had seen God do 10 plagues in Egypt, after he had opened the Red Sea, after they had been eating manna in the wilderness, after he'd given them water from a rock. I mean, they had seen his hand of mercy and supernatural miracles for 40 years. And they said, God, we don't believe you. And God said, fine, you don't want to go in? You're not going in. 40 years you're going to wander in the wilderness. One for every day the spies were in the land, and the only exceptions were Joshua and Caleb because they had remained faithful and said, hold it, 
God told us to go in. He's capable. We're going to trust him and go in. Now, this 40-year period has ended. They've been in the wilderness. And the entire generation that left Egypt has died, except for those that were 20 years old or lower. So when they ran to Kadesh Barnea, God says, anybody that's 20 years older or younger, not a problem. If you were 20 years or older, you knew you had a life expectancy of 40 years. Everybody in that generation was going to die before you got in. And you knew it was 40 years. So if you're 21, you got 39 years to live and you know it. That's interesting. And Moses did dozens of funerals a day for 40 years until that whole generation died. Sin has consequences. Don't kid yourself. It has consequences. So now they're on the plains of Moab. Rob's going to give you another look. Right east of the Dead Sea, Jericho's in the north part of that. They're just camped on the east side there in the plains of Moab, opposite uh, Jericho and the Jordan River. And this is the book of Deuteronomy takes place in this campsite. This plains of Moab is a place where they camp for a period of time. And the book of Deuteronomy takes place over a 30-day period. So the book of Deuteronomy is a series of three major sermons or three major addresses that Moses gives the nation of Israel over a period of about one month. So this is a 30-day window into the life of Israel. Moses is 120 years old. For the first 40 years, he was in Egypt as a prince. The second 40 years in the desert as a prince of, uh, I mean, as a shepherd. And the last block of 40 years, he's leading the people through the wilderness. He's now in the last few months of his life. He's probably within 90 days of dying. And God commands Moses to prepare the next generation to go into the land because the first generation is not going to go in due to unbelief. They're already dead. And the book of Deuteronomy literally means second law giving. Deuteros is second. Nomos is law. So Deuteronomy is the second law giving. So this book, Deuteronomy, that Jesus quoted from, it's Israel's constitution. And it really delineates the organization of the nation of Israel under God's rule. Anybody who was under 20 was born in the wilderness, had not been to Mount Sinai, had not heard God give Israel the law. So Moses said, you're going to give it to them again. Second law giving. You're going to prepare the next generation to go into the land because they weren't there at Mount Sinai. And the theme of Deuteronomy over and over and over and over again is, when you obey God, you will be blessed. When you disobey God, you will be cursed. That's a formula. You can take that to the bank in your life today. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Got it? Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. By the way, people say, well, how come God's got this thing with obedience? Because God commands our obedience for our own good. In the same way that you tell your children. You know... It's your option, but if you want to play in the freeway, you can. No, you don't give your young children the option to play in the freeway. You know it's in their best interest not to play in the freeway. You lock them in the backyard, right? When they're young, so they're they're, they're not hurt. Serving God is far better than serving Satan. Obedience always draws you closer to God, and being closer to God is being better than being far away from God. So obedience is for our own good. So God says in this book, obey me and I'll bless you. And you say, okay, why should I bother? 
What's my motive to obey God? Why bother obeying God? Well, some people say, I just want the goodies. I want God to give me the goodies. I want to avoid the baddies, and I'll obey for that reason. See, that's the external motivation. You obey God because all you really want are the blessings that God gives you. However, external incentives to obey are usually temporary. I'm going to give you the first part of this rhyme, and I sure you know the back half. When the cat's away, yes, and that applies to your children too sometimes, right? How many of you have found out that many times your children only obey as long as you are looking, right? So Jesus is talking now about the internal motive to obey. And that is found in Israel's confession of faith, Deuteronomy 6, 4. And this is what Jesus quotes the scribe. Hear, O Israel, I wish Stuart was here, you could do it in Hebrew. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Here is the central principle. The central purpose of life is knowing, loving, and serving God with everything I am. The central purpose of life is knowing, loving, and serving God with everything I am. You can get distracted from lots of worthless things chasing the trinkets of this life. This is the central purpose of life. This is a Shema. The Shema is Israel's statement of faith. And the first word of this confession of faith is Shema, which means hear, H-E-A-R, hear, escuchen. So the Shema is recited morning and night by religious Jews even today. And when the scribe asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, Jesus didn't invent something new. He took him right back to Moses, right back in the Deuteronomy, right back to the confession of faith and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus added, with all your mind. There were three, and now there's four. I want you to notice that this Shema is a call to unity. It says, Hear, O Israel. It calls the entire nation of Israel to be united in their pursuit of the one and only true God. And there's no room for divided loyalty because there is only one God. There's not two, three, polytheism. Not only is there only one God, this God is, He has always been, and He always will be. He is the eternal we sing the song, I am the great, I am, right? He is the eternal self-existent God. And this one God is the Lord. And the Greek there is kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. And it means master or owner. God is master. God is owner. This God is the creator who owns it all because he made it all. Including you and I including us. And amazingly, this God is our God. This is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Many, many religions believe in an infinite God out there somewhere, but only Christianity postulates an infinite God that is also a personal God. You have an infinite personal God who is all-powerful, and yet you can have a relationship with this God. God is knowable. He is there and he is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer said decades ago. So we can have a relationship with this God. And that relationship is based on love. 
The only sustainable motivation for obeying God is love. This, this call to love God is a call to love God with everything you have and everything you are. This commandment has four alls. You could call it the all commandment. It says, love the Lord your God with all your, all your, all your mind and all your. Now, we have a model. We have a person who has done this perfectly. And his name is Jesus Christ. Praise God. He kept the law perfectly. So this Shema, if you will, this confession of faith is a call to wholehearted and single-minded devotion to God. And he says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now your heart in the scripture, in the Bible, is the core of who you are. It is your identity. It is your character. It is your desires. It is your purposes. It's your motives. And they all flow from your heart. It's the core of who you are, the source of your thoughts and words and actions, etc. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You know, it's interesting. When we see people behave badly, how many of you are shocked? They already went astray in their heart before it showed up in their behavior, Right? So when, when you think smart people do stupid things, they're doing stupid things, sinful things in their heart, in their thoughts, before it comes out in behavior. That's why Solomon says, pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to your motives. Pay attention to your purposes. Number two, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. This has to do with emotions and desires and passions. It actually expands beyond that into the whole person. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, emotional. He was looking at the cross. David saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's the core, his emotions, his desires, and all that is within me. So soul really refers to our emotions, but expands to all of us as living persons. In Genesis, it says that God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man or woman both became a living soul. So it's the essence. Jesus added the word mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind. And this is a combination really of intellect and will. Volition, the intentions, the purposes, the choices, the decisions, the thinking that we do. How many of you have ever said, I've made up my mind? And now that's a combination of will and intellect. You've thought about it. You've reasoned through it. You've planned through it. You've put thought into it. And it's a decision based on thought and reason and commitment. And lastly, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength. And this has to do with physical energy, physical power or might. And it's not just muscle might, but it has to do with loving the Lord with everything you are. In other words, nothing held back. It speaks of a complete commitment to God with nothing held back. So loving God involves our intellect, our emotions, our will, our motives, our, our, our character, our whole person. And it's the opposite of compartmentalization. Compartmentalization says that God is a part of my life. God has a piece of my life, you know, generally on Sundays. Uh, but the rest of the time, I've got other areas of my life that God is not a part of. Matter of fact, I've got other areas of my life I don't want God to be a part of. That's compartmentalization. That is the opposite of this commandment. This commandment says God is central to every single thing I do. 
and love for God should permeate every area of my life. My relationship with God is not part of my life. My relationship with God is the whole point of life. Matter of fact, your relationship with God is life. How many of you have ever realized that um, you are dependent on God for your next breath? We, 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 we get that way occasionally. I talk to people that are in the hospital, and they're highly conscious of that. Or when you get a medical diagnosis that is, quite frankly, frightening. We're highly conscious that I, I, I'm here only because God allows me to be here. When everything's going well, it's terribly easy to, well, yeah, of course I get it tomorrow morning. Of course I do what I want to do. Maybe. Maybe not. John 17.3 defines life as relationship with God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So being connected with the Creator is the source of life because our life is derived from Him. He alone dwells independent of everybody. And our motive to love God is grounded in the reality that He alone is worthy to be loved, right? He alone is worthy to be worshipped. There's no human being that's worthy of your worship. Our love for God really is a response to His love for us, correct? 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. So God takes the initiative to love us, and our love is us responding to His love. And we are to love Him like He loves us in the same way. So one of the interesting questions is, if I'm supposed to love God like He loves me, how does God love me? Well, the Greek is agape. It is a selfless love. It is a sacrificial love. It is an intentional love. It's an eternal love. It's an unconditional love just like your children love you today, right? Wouldn't that be nice? It's what we crave and what we so seldom receive because we humans are flakes. Our love is conditional. Our love is reciprocal. If you do this, then I'll do this. God's love is not reciprocal. It is unconditionally committed to your well-being. And we know that Romans 5.8 says... You want proof that God's love you? God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still at war with him, while we were still his enemies, while we were still fighting him, he died for us. If you ever wonder whether God loves you, look at the cross. And I know, you know, we all deal with circumstances and some circumstances you all in are really hard right now. I've talked to a lot of you. I know that. And it's easy to say, I don't know, if God loves me, he'd give me easier circumstances. No, because he loves you, he trusts you with the circumstances he's given you. But you always look at your circumstances through the lens of the cross. Always. Look at your circumstances through the lens of the cross. We know God loves us because he laid down his life for us. His love was demonstrated when he paid the penalty for our sins. While we were still his enemies, Pastor Roger talked about loving your enemies. Well, Jesus Christ loved you and I when we were still at war with him and died on our behalf. And our, his love is demonstrated by his death on our behalf. Our love for him is demonstrated by our obedience to him. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And of course, we look and we go, I don't obey anybody, man. Yeah, you do. Most of us obey our stomach three times a day. Come on. At 2 a.m., most of you obey your bladder. Let's get real. None of us are independent, right? I mean, let's get real. God commands obedience because it's an expression of his love for us. Sorry, that wasn't in my notes, but I had to say to <laughs> Talking about myself again, you know. We're going on this ride together. I mean, right? We might as well go together. So loving God is not just the greatest of the commandments. It's the very purpose of life. God gave us the Ten Commandments and Jesus came to pay our, for our sins for the only one purpose. God wants a relationship with us. That blows my mind. I have absolutely nothing to give him except trouble and brokenness and stupid. I got stupid down, right? I, what, what do I bring to God? He loves us anyway. He loves us because that's who he is. And he wanted the relationship with us. And he has demonstrated that love. And he commands us to love him. And you go, okay, Brad, that's good. But where do I get the power to love God? I mean, I don't have that enemy. My gas tank's empty. Loving God is not natural, especially for the sinner who is separated from God. And we inherited our sin nature from birth. When you came out of the womb, you were singing my way or the highway. You were. And some of you are still on that tune from time to time. And I'm on that highway too from time to time. Because before salvation, we were all at war with God. Romans 8, 7 says, The mindset in the flesh... That's before you came to Christ, is hostile toward God. And those who are in the flesh, those who are not yet redeemed, cannot please God. You need to understand, from God's point of view, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Only two. Those who hate him and those who love him. Either a God-hater or a God-lover. No other combination. Exodus 20 says, God is commanding the Israelites... He says, you shall not worship them idols or serve them idols, he's talking about. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me. What's the next phrase? How do you demonstrate love for God? And keep my commandments. See, every one of us has a choice. Either I'm going to be at war with God and hate him, or I'm going to be submissive to him and I'm going to love him. So our ability to love God comes from God's love in us through Jesus Christ. Everyone who has trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins is peace with God already. Jesus made peace. And you have the Holy Spirit. Your ability to do anything in this life spiritually is 100% dependent on the Holy Spirit. Because in ourselves, we don't have capacity. The Holy Spirit not only convicts us of sin, guides us into truth, leads us to Christ, it's the source of Christ-like character. And we call Christ-like character the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is life. If you look at a plant and it has fruit, what do you assume? It's living. And the more fruit it has, you're saying there's a lot of excess life in this plant. A plant that stops producing fruit... Is not a healthy plant. And if it starts dropping leaves, 
It's really not healthy, so it starts dying from the outside in. So you measure the health of a plant by its fruit. You measure the health of a Christian by the fruit, by the Christ-like character. And the very first fruit of the Spirit is, what is it? Love. love. Where do I get love from? From the Holy Spirit, from God. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about that. The essential central nature of love. So Jesus said, the primary mission of life is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Here's the principle. You cannot love others as you love yourself until you first love God with all of yourself. You cannot love others as you love yourself until you first love God with all of yourself. Pastor Roger alluded to this today, only he took it one step further when Jesus said, you don't just love your neighbors, you love your enemies. And of course, I'm going, yeah, with a 12-gauge, but anyway. <laughs> that's the flesh, that's not scripture. So Jesus quotes Leviticus 19 as the second part of this commandment. And the heart of the Christian life is real simple. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. And have you noticed that loving God is often easier than loving people? Because God is perfect. That makes it harder too. So our ability to love people on the horizontal is utterly dependent on how we're loving God in the primary vertical relationship. If you look at Ten Commandments, the first four are all vertical. Have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol, right? Do not take the name of the Lord your God. Man, keep the Sabbath. It's all vertical. The second six are all horizontal. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Bear false witness. Do not covet. Those are all horizontal. Your ability to keep the last six depend on how you're doing with the first four. Because you have to have the power source from God to do that. If we're loving God properly, we'll never break the first four. And if we're loving God properly, we'll never break the last six either. If we're loving God with everything we are, then he gives us the power and the desire to love others with his supernatural love. By the way, I used to think that was optional. Loving others is not an option. It is a command. I didn't say you had to like it. I just said that's the command, John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So loving others requires sacrifice. Have you ever found that loving people sometimes is not easy? Jesus Christ sacrificed love sacrificed his life for us to demonstrate his love for us. And he says, I want you to love others with that same love. Jesus loved us when we were unlovely. And quite frankly, most of us are unlovely. Aren't we? Most people are not easy to love. They're not. Especially you and me. All relationships require a great deal of love, which is most often expressed by forgiveness. The greatest expression of love is probably forgiveness. We may never be called upon to lay down our lives for another, but we are called upon every day to lay down our rights for another. And we are in a culture now that is consumed with my 
rights. Everybody wants my rights. No one's concerned about your rights. People usually demand their rights and delegate their responsibilities. How many of you work with people that do everything they can do to get work off their plate and onto somebody else's? Yeah, those are the people you'd say, you're short timers here. I'm going to have you on the sidewalk. But anyway, <laughs> Jesus is the opposite. Jesus laid down his rights and picked up his responsibilities. Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the Good Samaritan is proof positive that your neighbor is anyone who needs love. Anyone who needs love is your neighbor. However, most of us take pretty good care of ourselves, don't we? Say yes. I saw you in the mirror this morning. No, I didn't. It's a good thing I did. We forgive ourselves pretty easily, right? Don't we? We forgive ourselves pretty often. Yeah, I said that bad thing, but you know, he had it coming, right? I mean, we're good at forgiving ourselves. We're very tolerant of bad behavior in ourselves. Not so much with other people. We give ourselves mercy and we give them judgment because it makes us feel better. We spend most of our lives caring for ourselves. Jesus simply says, take care of others with the same care you lavish on yourself. Wow. This is supernatural. This is not natural. We can't do this without the indwelling Holy Spirit. We will not love this way without divine assistance. Verse 32. The scribe says to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Isn't that interesting? Here's the principle. The way into heaven is not through correct theology or sincere morality, but through repentance and faith in Christ alone. The way into heaven. I didn't say the way to heaven. I'm not interested in getting to heaven. I want to get into heaven. I don't want to get to the gate and go, you know the right passcode. Your user ID is faulty. I want to get in, right? And that's not through correct theology or sincere morality, but through repentance and faith in Christ alone. And many, many commentators will say, well, Jesus was commending this guy. You're not far. No, no, no. This was condemnation. This was not commendation. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. And that would have been a slap in the face to this scribe. Because it said, you're still outside, baby. You're outside the gate. You're not inside God's kingdom. You're outside the kingdom. This scribe, along with all the scribes and Pharisees, they not only thought they were inside the kingdom, they thought they were closer to God than anybody else. I mean, you know, they were the doctors of theology. They were the legal eagles. They were the elite. And Jesus said, you're still on the outside. They thought they were qualified to judge the theology of everybody else. And Jesus said, I've weighed you in the balance and found you wanting. Now, he wasn't far from the kingdom of God in the sense that he was standing in front of the king. I mean, proximity-wise, he's real close to Jesus. He's probably three, four feet away. So he's close to the kingdom there. But he repeated back to Jesus everything he said. So it's clear he understood what Jesus said, that you are to love God with all everything you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. We don't have any record that he acted on that knowledge. We don't have any record that he actually repented 
and exercised faith in Christ. We don't have any of that. See, knowing the truth about sin and salvation does not save you from sin. I mean, it's a necessary first step. You can't obey what you don't know. But believing that you're supposed to love God, yeah, that's insufficient for salvation. The Bible says even the demons believe in God. doesn't do them any good because they don't act on it. They know the truth of the Bible, but yet they shudder because they refuse to surrender to God. Matter of fact, Jesus told the Jews who had believed him in John 8, 31, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In other words, if you know the truth and you live in accordance with the truth. I have um, gotten several tickets in my life. It's been a while. Marin says my number's coming. And Mia has noticed that I stop at most orange lights now, and uh, I didn't <laughs> used to do that. I said most. I didn't say all. So... I've gotten tickets for going through red lights. I've got tickets for speeding. And not one time did the cop ever say, since you know that you broke the law, I'm going to let you off. <laughs> not once. He said, do you know how fast you were going? I was doing 75 and a 55 on 7th standard. Yeah, I knew how fast I was going. <laughs> I can own it, but it doesn't matter because I didn't live in accordance with what I knew. I had lunch with a guy for years. I used to work for him, and he was a smoker. And I sat there at lunch for months and watched a tumor grow on the side of his neck until it was the size of a grapefruit, and he never did anything about it until it killed him. You can know that you've got a problem, and you can recognize the truth of it. It doesn't do anything if you don't act on it. That's why Jesus said, knowing the truth does not save you. Living in accordance with the truth will save you. The foundation of our relationship with God is love. The foundation of our relationship with others is love. And we're able to love because He first loved us, gave us His Holy Spirit, and had come to live in us. So we have the power to love God. We have the power to love others. But we still have to choose to do that. It's a choice. It's a commitment. It's not a feeling. When we choose to love God and others, we're acting like God acts toward us. And love is the defining characteristic of the Christian life. One of the most profound statements, Jesus, everything Jesus said was profound, but one of the ones that convicted me, he said, By this everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So people are watching you, and the question is, do they see the love of Jesus? Do they see the supernatural love of Jesus, which most often is revealed when you're under pressure? That's when you behave unlike the world because you have a supernatural power source and it shines the light of Jesus on a set of circumstances because they know they can't love that way. Neither can you and I, except for Jesus in us. Let's review and then I'll ask Tom to come and lead us in, in a prayer and praise. Here's the summary. The central purpose of life is knowing, loving, and serving. Those are three very good verbs. You cannot love what you do not know, and you will not serve who you do not love. Knowing, loving, and serving God with everything I am. Nothing held back. Number two, you cannot love others as you love yourself until you first love God with 
all of yourself. If you want to know what you're holding out on God, ask him. He will shine the searchlight on your life and show you the compartments of your house that you have locked doors on, that you have not surrendered to him. I do this, and it scares me every time I do it because I'm afraid of what I'm going to find. Because we all have areas we're holding out on God on. We do. Let him clean the house. My heart Christ's home. Good little book. You cannot love others as you love yourself until you first love God with all of yourself. Then he will give you the power to love others. And number three, the way into heaven is not through correct theology. It's not through showing up at Valley Baptist Church. It's not being sincere. It's not doing good. It's not volunteering. It's through repentance, turning away from sin and faith in Christ alone. Okay, hard lesson, but essential lesson about what the important things in life really are. Please read ahead in 1 Timothy. We'll spend the next 12 weeks, Lord willing, in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. I love you all. And now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.